G'day guys, Kerry here from Precision Shooter and um, while working through the list of people I get to talk to, I mean the great great thing about me doing this is it's just a perfect excuse for me to get in contact with guys who are sort of the, um, well I, I think in, in the case of this person an apt term would be one of the founding founding fathers of sort of what, what we are seeing a lot happening now. Um, I thought uh, one person I hadn't seen much of and would love to talk to was Jacob from Rifles Only. So today uh, Jake has been kind enough, he's got his uh, big comp coming up, the 2019 brawl in a couple of weeks but he's he's taken a bit of time just to um, uh, have a chat with us. So Jacob, hello, thank you very much for your time. Ah, no problem man, I enjoy this. So for for the guys who uh, haven't heard of you, and I, I think part of this is is sort of just in some ways recognition for the work you've been doing for a long time. I mean, now there's a lot of Facebook pages. There's a lot of, um, for lack of term, and I mean this in a, a compliment, personalities who are talking about training and doing training videos and everything. But um, to be blunt, you were one of the first guys from my understanding or from my observation down here in New Zealand doing a lot of this you were sort of above the bell uh, in front of the bell curve in regards to both training but also putting some of this information up online so um with the amount that you've done we could probably cover this all off for hours to talk about what you've actually done but do you want to give people a little bit of a history with uh rifles only where it started and and one thing i've noticed which i think i came in just afterwards but also just a quick history of what the source was right right yeah the the source was you know we, we had the platform whenever the internet came up you know to where we could go out and and actually start to to do things to talk about the fundamentals you know the the thing about it is with us you know my background you know is in you know hunting competitive shooting things like that i've even been in new zealand before i went down there and hunted tar and red stag on the south island Nice. Um, so I've had a chance to, to hunt in quite a few different places. Um, and you know, again, whenever you start to, you know, you start to go and you shoot competitively, you know, and you're going out and you're, you're winning these things. And the way it started out was, you know, just, you know, hitting these, these little matches, there were no field rifle matches back at that point. Mm. And, um, the ones that, the ones that started to come up where some people pockets in the U S were doing these field rifle matches, you know, I would go over there and, and, um, you know, meet with this pretty good success at these things. And so, um, it just it kind of led on from there it's it's a real passion for me um and so whenever i first started of course there wasn't you know the big presence on the internet or anything else mm. one of my first one of my first major training contracts was actually in your neck of the woods down in australia and oh. so uh got a got a lot of friends down there in the australian army and, and people that have gotten out since and stuff like that so i'm i'm i really am in love with your part of the world there's no question about it but, um, you know, it came up to where, you know, the internet came on, um, and it was, it, I couldn't understand how come people would come to classes, you know, and it would be either civilian or, or law enforcement or military, and they just didn't have a grasp of the fundamentals of marksmanship. And I didn't know why that was. Now, of course, everybody has, everybody has mentors in this industry. And, uh, mine was Clint Smith at Thunder Ranch. You know, he's mm -hmm. a, a real fundamentals guy. Um, so he's been doing this forever. Um, and so he, he always fell back on the fundamentals and I internalized the fundamentals and I, I figured out how to, in most cases, be able to get my clients to understand the fundamentals and what they can do for them. And it's just, it's just such a charge to see that light bulb go off. But by doing the source, uh, it gave us a chance to, you know, get out there, 
do, you know, uh, quick videos, you know, on, on different fundamentals, different shooting positions, different shooting props, different things that you would see. And so, um, that's kind of where that came from. Well, I think this is the thing which, which again prompted me to get in contact with you because recently I've I've seen the DVDs that you had available. The source now is is the 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 videos you had on there. My understanding the the only real place those are accessible is through the um, Vimeo on demand. That's correct. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, because I, I was yeah. I was actually going through. Uh, I, I'd subscribed to Thomas THLR from Norway. Uh, his videos mm. on Vimo, and one of the recommendeds came up was your uh, videos. And I was like, oh, oh my god, awesome! They're actually online. I I never got around to it, but always always intended to order the DVDs. But being 2018, I'm like, well, why can't I just watch them online? And I can. So right. I, I basically went through, devoured all of those, and it it occurs to me, and I think. I mean, without I, I know you're um, sometimes hesitant to kind of um, uh, toot your own horn, so I, I'll do it for you. But those videos are now what's coming out as sort of people are uh, lead. Oh my God, we're finally putting videos out. But you look at those videos; it's the same valid content. You've just done it so far ahead of anybody else that it's it predates Facebook and. My history with the internet goes back prior to internet BBS, so I appreciate people who have been that far ahead of forward thinking and wanting to get this stuff out. So, well, it's a, it, to your point, and, and I'll make this valid. You know, the the one fundamentals DVD that we sell through our pro shop, uh, and I mean, it's it's a good video. I've got hair down to here, and you know, people <laughs> saying. You know, you need to update this video. You know, you need to update this video. And really, the only thing I could update on it would be the equipment that I'm using during the video. But you can't update the fundamentals, man. They, they've just been around forever, you know. So, and again, I'm seeing more people. I'm just exactly like you said. I'm seeing everybody, you know, gravitating. Okay, now now we're doing the fundamentals. We're doing the fundamentals. All right, well, you know, fundamentals have been around for centuries. So, you know, I just I just enjoy it. Well, that's been the thing. You would think for people getting, and I suppose is it, there's new people always getting into it. We're noticing more and more people getting into um, the the field style shoots. As I say, we've got some guys down down in the lower North Island and the South Island who've been doing these for a while now. They're phenomenal, but more hunters and people are getting into it as a way to test themselves, learn more, and, and with that has people is people realizing oh well there's these things called the fundamentals that like you say have been around for so long but are, are things now that we can just see online and learn and train and everything so yeah, one thing you mentioned is like in regards to how the fundamentals haven't really changed is it just been a, and then you mentioned the equipment has has anything changed because obviously there's a little bit of a, not a movement towards, but there's a lot more of the chassis style rifles available now, which is obviously taking big leads off the, the AR style platforms, the pistols, everything modular. Um, mm -hmm. have, have you found there have been any little tweaks or changes based on that compared to, say, a traditional uh, rifle stock? Um, or is it really same thing, you're just adapting to the equipment that, that is on hand? There, there's nothing... There's nothing that's been out there that's going to actually make you shoot better. I, I don't care sure. if you have the best in the world. It's not going to make you a better shooter. The only thing that's going to make you a better shooter is putting in your time on practice on the fundamentals. But they're, they're, they are more comfortable to shoot. They're more adjustable. And a lot of times, you know, back when I first started out, here's the stock for your rifle. Hmm. There's the stock. You, you adapt yourself to that stock. Well, now, now, thank goodness, you know, like I was, I've spoken about it before, 
you know, these engineers that we have doing this, they're building these stocks that are like multi-adjustable to fit you to a T, which really helps whenever you're bringing in, you know, really young shooters or, or shooters with a different body style, shorter, taller than normal. So now there's more options and, and it makes it more comfortable to shoot. They don't make you shoot better, but they do make it more comfortable to shoot. And so I think that's, I think that's fantastic. You know, it's just great. But as far as, you know, again, I, I, hate, I hate to say this, but, you know, I can pick up a hunting rifle and shoot it just as well as my Accuracy International. But I, I think that's the important bit and the key is that those fundamentals are transferable. So whatever you're picking up, you're applying the same thing. Sure, it might not be, as you say, fitting quite as well, but the actual method of shooting them or the, the, the fundamentals don't change. So you should be able to go back to a very simple hunting rifle. Um, yeah. Yeah, you look at them when you look at them. Whether you've got you know a chassis rifle or one that's you know got a traditional hunting style stock, they still operate the same way. The bullet goes one way, the recoil goes the other. So it's not, you know, there's really no big huge advancement. But I guess I guess one way to put it, you know, if you if you go and you look at a Harley Davidson that was made in the 1950s and go for a ride on it, it's not a very smooth ride. Mm-hmm. But then if you pick up a Harley now in 2019 you know, they just fit you like a glove, you know, they're so much more comfortable and so many more safety features on them. So it's an evolution. It's an evolution of the equipment. It's, it's a natural evolution. It, it, it was bound to happen. Do you, do you think that, uh, that change of a, it's sort of a, I suppose a, a bit of a loaded question, a double double banger as well, because it's easy to forget that there is a shooting world outside. For some of us, there's a shooting world outside the PRS or the NRL, that field style shooting. But do you think the um, the improvement or the 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 equipment that's coming out now has sort of caused people to not think about the fundamentals or just over just gloss over and go well. Basically, if I get the latest gun, latest whiz-bang caliber or something, I don't need to worry so much about the fundamentals? Or do you think it's simply they don't know in the first place that they exist as such? Uh, both. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, the thing about it is whenever whenever I first started out, you know, doing this, it was it was 300 Win Mag or 308, you know. And then now I just I just received three six-millimeter Creedmoor barrels to screw onto my, my AW. Yeah. Uh, and again... A very light recoil, you know, goes farther, flatter, bucks win better, everything else. But you can't, you can't buy skill. You know, you can go out and it's one of the things that I say in my classes, you know, and, and again, I've done hundreds of classes, you know, over the last couple of decades. And I've met shooters from all over the world. Um, I was doing a course for the Estonian Scouts Battalion years ago, back in the 90s. And this one of the one of the army guys, he came up and he had this rifle that I had never seen before. The scope adjusted in mils, but it adjusted in one mil increments. I mean, this thing was, I mean, it was clunky. You could actually yeah. see that put and down. I have no idea what kind of rifle it was. It was some sort of, you know, it looked like a semi-auto, but it was the bolt gun. And this guy could actually make that rifle walk and talk. I mean, he could actually make this thing sing like it was beautiful. And so that was one of those deals to where he had a good concept of the fundamentals of marksmanship. Where me, you know, I go over and, and I see these guys that come through and they have these these calibers that with no recoil, they're easy to shoot. And like I say in the classes, if you if you don't internalize the fundamentals, if you just kind of, you know, halfway do them, you can get to be to where you're a pretty good shooter, but you're never going to be great. You're never going to be great until you internalize those fundamentals. 
It's just like you're hitting it twice. One, we got a gun that is very comfortable and performs flawlessly. Now what we're going to do is we're going to properly apply the fundamentals to that. It's just a winning combination. And I'll tell you, the the ones, the great shooters, the really great shooters, I I know maybe 10, you know, of all the people that are out here. I know some ones that are really, really good, but the great ones, the one that, you know, there's nothing you can throw at them that they can't solve. And it, it all falls back to that one common denominator. It's the fundamentals of marksmanship. And it wouldn't matter wouldn't matter what rifle I gave them. They would be fine with it. Yeah. Yep. Do you do you have any thoughts? And I know and I've read and understand sort of the arguments both ways, but at, at the moment there is a lot of talk about guys will have, and in, in the context of, say, competition, they'll have their match rifle and then they'll have a training rifle. And mm-hmm. some people would suggest the best idea for a training rifle is something like a two two three, something really low recoiling, really simple, really cheap to run. But then other people will say, well, no, you should really be shooting something like a three oh eight because the recoil forces you to have to apply those fundamentals so that the recoil doesn't take advantage. You got thoughts mm-hmm. either way, or is it sort of that thing will just shoot a bit of both of them and they're training different things? I think I think both of them are valid. Mm-hmm. Um and I think both both ideologies are valid. One, the 308, the 308-762-51 was designed from the beginning as an 800-yard cartridge. We shoot them to 1,000 yards or 1,000 meters because we're arrogant and because we can. And now we have bullets that will actually do it most of the time. Yeah. They, they, there was a time when the 308 bucked the wind really well, but we had no frame of reference, nothing mm. to compare it to. So now we've got these little calibers with a lot higher BCs that buck the wind better and everything else. So now it's become... The 308 is a great training tool because if you get a hit on a partially obscured target at some unknown distance range between you know 800 and 1100, you've actually worked for it. I mean, you you've worked for it. You've applied the fundamentals. You you've tested your wind reading skills, and, and you've really done it. And then I look on the other side. There's nothing I like better than to grab my 77-22 and just practice positional shooting. You know, just standard slung up positional shooting with the 22. And the reason is it's not hurting my wallet every time I pull the trigger. You know mm. that 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 22 and I can still apply the fundamentals. And if I'm not applying the fundamentals when I'm using that as a trainer, it's going to show up downrange. It's going to show up in, you know, larger group sizes, flyers that I don't know where they came from. Well, I, I know where they came from, but I, I see the validity in both of them. Um, it's just from my perspective, you know, now it, it's like, I have to be able, I have to be able to look at the, at the pros and cons of any gear that comes through the door. And, um, you know, now we're just seeing a lot less cons and a heck of a lot more pros. I mean, there's just, there's really good equipment nowadays. Well, it's, it's interesting because you'll see these, it's, it's the wonders of, of online social media conversations where people will sort of almost complain about the traditional way of thinking or dogma, but then explain a new way of thinking and be so ingrained that there can't be any other alternative to what they're suggesting as well and and in some ways this 223-308 discussion can be the case where you go in the middle and go well they're both valid what are you using it for is always what I think it needs to come back to most of the time what's the context what's the framing what are you using it for because yeah like you say we've noticed for new shooters wanting to get into say field shooting stuff the 22 competitions that happen are great because they're just so accessible we can have the the kids get involved the partners will get involved it can be a family thing it's super cheap but it still translates so well to their actual centerfire rifles as well oh there's no question about that there's no Mm -hmm. question about it you hit the nail on the head um but you know the thing about it is there's you know there's some things that have gone on out there you know like um it takes me back to the brawl that we had two years ago uh, we had a police officer show up uh, shooting a 
223 bolt gun and ended up taking third place. Mm. That's impossible. It can't yeah. happen. <laughs> but that's how it happened. <laughs> so I'm not I'm not gonna discount those. You know, the the and it, it's like with the new stuff out there and everything else, it's like the everybody's shooting mill scopes now. You guys didn't have this problem. I think y'all have been with mills for, for decades, but we just kind of made that transition from, you know, the nineties, you know, to now to where, you know, you still run across a few MOA scopes and things like that. And then, you know, someone will say, well, you know, mill is so much better on the optic. I don't know, man. There's a, there's a stack of dead people that say MOA scopes shoot pretty good. Mm. In New Zealand. Yeah. We do find a, a, or a lot of the hunters I come across will have a, what is essentially a MOA scope. Although a lot of them won't be using, they wouldn't know if it was MOA or mill because basically it's zeroed once and never adjusted with all the, you know, their, their covered turrets. And then I think right. because a lot of the new guys and myself included, when I was just the first guy that really took me out and showed me the shooting side of things was running mills. So we just ran mills. Um, and I think it's New Zealand is sometimes a little bit unique because we're so remote. We have a lot of influence from the European um, market and products, and the uh, therefore the the even to the cartridges. We have a lot of the Swede cartridges, but then equal mm-hmm. parts from the US, and it makes it quite interesting because it's it's sort of just a, a touch a touch of everything really. Um, sure. But ultimately, I say to people, the biggest thing, I, I used to have it in a completely different industry, but I used to, and we got the question of Apple versus PC a lot for audio recording, and in the end, I sort of just said, look, they'll, bo- they'll both work, uh, what are all the people around you using, because you want to be speaking the same language as all those people around you, and please sure. don't don't spend the next year fretting about it because it's a year you could have been recording, or it could have been a year that you could have actually been shooting and learning your equipment. Right, right. I agree with that. And again, we still get some of the MOAs that come through here. Fortunately, I speak both languages, and I've got a pretty good translation program for them. So we're not really missing out on the on the training aspect if someone does show up with MOA. Well, we we get an interesting da- one down here as well. On top of it is that uh, we will uh, half the guys will use meterage, half the guys will use yards when they're ranging stuff. So we sort of make it quite clear to people if they range something on a line, they need to tell us if it's 125, whether it's 125 meters, 125 year- yards, feet, nautical miles. Let us know what you're actually using, because the amount of times I've seen that go wrong because they're not putting a unit at the back of it and. Sure. Same thing. As long as you're running, somebody's running mills or MOA, you can you can like you say convert on a phone or something quick anyway. Yeah, yeah, and it's and, and you're right, but you know it doesn't really matter what you're measuring in if it's inches, furlongs, chains. It doesn't make a difference. The range is a range. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so have have you noticed over the last well over the twenty years been doing it, but over the last couple of years in particular that the um, there is more recognition within the civilian market as a as a need or a the advantages of actual proper formal training i mean certainly always been there for the military but uh for the civilian market has that have you noticed an increase as people realize the value of it yes and no you know the there's um one of the things that we're starting to see of course our we're real fortunate our our courses are are full and you know we're able to to train a lot of people. And plus we have a, a varied clientele, which, you know, includes law enforcement, you know, military and civilians. But uh, the good thing about that's going on now down here is like we were talking about the NRL 22. Yeah. Well, that thing 
that thing is exploding. I mean, it is exploding. And whenever they first came out with it, I thought, I thought, man, that's gonna that's gonna be something really good. I think in two years it's gonna be very popular. Boy, was I wrong. It just took a couple of months, and that <laughs> thing was popular, which made me happy. I was I was glad to I was glad that I screwed up on my timeline there. But another thing that we're doing is, you know, we have these national level matches, um, and again, they're they're really good. But we're also doing club matches, and these yep. these club matches. What we're doing is we're getting people out pulling the triggers more often. And so they are seeing it. When they go to these club matches, you know, they're coming, they're, they're talking to instructors, they're talking to people who've been shooting a whole lot. And so the, the need for training and the realization that there's a need for training is there. You know, we're seeing it. We're seeing a lot of people come through here. You know, I, I, I do a meet and greet every, every one of my classes. And if it's a civilian class and there's uh, 15 people in it, eight of them say, I want to I shoot better in the matches. And so that's good. You know, I mean, it works out really good. So the it's something similar again. Like I said before we, we sort of started recording, I, I find for a lot of trends, New Zealand can be um, up on par with a lot of stuff, and certainly the internet has basically helped with this. But on, on bigger trends, we still follow, I don't know what the exact thing is, but a year or two behind and, and field shoots have started more. You'll see now some of the field shoots have a PRS stage, one or two. Um, but yeah, we're, we're in a similar thing that there's a few guys down south who are getting these 22 shoots and the field shoots as well. Auckland, bit of a challenge. We're still just working on appropriate range and spaces. But I think as well, for me, it's one thing I harp on and bang on to a lot of guys about is this need to have just more regular, maybe not as, as big a grand designs and it doesn't need to be, you know, 10, 20 stages, but smaller monthly events just to get guys out regularly uh, for a lot of them practicing would be the the, sure. the thing and, and doing it. And this is myself included. My biggest challenge is I just don't get out to to shoot and practice enough. Ironly, ironically, I've been out twice this week and I didn't actually pick up a rifle. I was I was there looking at the guy shooting and, and spotting and kind of, you know, helping him out. That was sort of the point of it. But I don't actually get to shoot that much, which is the, the ironic part of everything I do. Um, what... What would you suggest, and this is for guys who are remote, in New Zealand we've got a couple of groups of people and individuals who are starting to offer training and we occasionally see guys coming down from the States or overseas to do big courses as well, but for people who don't necessarily have access to trainers, I mean what's the the next best best option? And I kind of know the answer here, but I'm sort of just leading into that I suppose. Well what do you think the answer is? Well, your videos for a start. <laughs> well, yeah, that that's helpful, but there's there's nothing there's nothing like having a coach right next to you. I agree, because yeah, and that, that's where you're going to get the best bang for your buck is is right there. If you have a coach that is sitting there watching you shoot, that's going to be your best bet. I I think I and this is what I was doing with guys, and I don't people have tried to assign this label to me but I don't really consider myself a coach or a trainer or things I basically go out facilitate people shooting but I often say to them it's like we've all been watching this stuff online for us we're reading we're seeing what we can do but yeah like you said the value of instead of lying next to each other and basically shooting and spotting for each other of one person getting up off their their stomach taking a couple of steps back and watching the guy and going hey we both know we should be square behind the rifle, but do you actually realize you're not? 
Do you actually- yeah, that's that's a tough one getting square. That that's where it helps to have somebody who's watching you. And and same thing. We had a guy we talked about. We we're both talking about what we we understand proper trigger control will be. But then you get behind the rifle, someone watches you, and they point out. It's like, do you realize you do slap that trigger? every time and they're like no i thought i was following you know holding it back I'm like well you're not and then suddenly it's that cue and and they do you start doing it yeah and it's also good to have that iphone handy so you can make a little short uh, four second video showing them slapping the trigger yes i had no idea i was doing that yep so uh, this sort of leads on to then for the guys who are because there's there is everybody's an internet expert now but i I like I, I watch for amusement. For example, your your barrel change video you put up recently, which was was a little bit obviously tongue in cheek, but was sort of showing a point where you were changing out your barrels basically with a hammer and a mallet. But you could see a lot of people in the comments had totally missed the point, misinterpreted. Basically, there was no way you knew what you were doing. Ra ra ra. Do you think there's a real danger of stuff derailing online to the point where people just don't know what the good info is and the bad info is? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing about it is I tried to put it in that video. And again, you're right. It was a little bit tongue in cheek. There was some there was some stuff behind that that had gone on, you know, about, you know, the the barrel change, you know, kits Well, barrel change kits that people got, which are, are really, really good. Yeah. And the way the way I change a barrel on there. At the end of the day, the barrel is still going to be changed. There's nothing that's going to happen. It does not affect your headspace. It doesn't. It, and I want people to understand that whenever you go out and you let's say you go to a, a really good gunsmith, you know, someone who knows what they're doing and there's tons of them out there and they produce this rifle for you. It truly is a work of art. Mm-hmm. Whenever you look at it, they're beautiful. I mean, they're they're beautiful machines, but don't lose sight of the fact that it's a tool, nothing more. It's just a tool. And so by going over and, and, and doing, you know, and again, that, that video had, (laughs) that video created a lot of, a lot of, a lot of comments, like you said, but again, I mean, I've been changing barrels like that for more than 20 years. It, it, it really doesn't, it really doesn't affect anything. And I wanted people to realize that, you know, if you don't, if you don't have the ability to go out and, and send your gun to a gunsmith to change a barrel, you know, you can still do it. Now, again, there's lots of background work. That that gun that I did it on is a 97, uh, 1997 Accuracy International. It's, it's the gun I've had forever. And so I can pretty much call up any gunsmith in the U.S. and have them spin up a barrel for me that's going to have the proper headspace. Because there's things behind it. I can't go off and, and pull a barrel off of a Remington and put it on my AW. You know, that that just doesn't work. Uh, I didn't, I should have probably explained that a little bit more in the video, but that gun specifically is made for that. It, it's made to have the barrel changed in the field. It's not anything, you know, that's that's different. Now, a lot of them, a lot of the guns aren't built to that kind of spec. Yeah. So you do have to send it to a gunsmith so they can check proper head spacing and everything else. But if that's done then you can change the barrel just the same. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. Well, it, it's interesting, like you said, it, it's a thing that, and I do it with uh, some of the stuff I put on the site now, I feel the need to frame nearly everything and give it context because it's just so, um, there's so much potential for people to take it out of context. But I guess on the flip side, in modern days, it's probably quite important for people to stop for a couple of seconds and try and understand the context and a little bit of the background before they just pass comment on anything. And that's that's probably a statement just for general online 
usage. Well, yeah, I mean, people hide behind their keyboards. You know, they get on their keyboards and they can say anything they want. You know, just come over here and come over here and I can explain to you why this works. It'll take me about 30 seconds to do it. Yeah. And again, what back to your larger point that you brought up, um, not necessarily concerning the video, but, you know, even in my classes, I will tell the entire the entire gallery in my classroom, the best place for finding out information about long range shooting is the Internet. And the worst place for finding out information about long range shooting is the Internet. Yep. Because there is a lot of misinformation out there. You hit the nail on the head on that one. Well, it's it's been the greatest, like you say, greatest boon but biggest challenge because there becomes so much noise. And that's why, you know, I mean, this is why I started doing the trigonometry show is the opportunity for me to contact the source and hence the great name of that, guys like yourself, and ask directly and try and connect online back to where a lot of this information has come down from because even I would suggest some of the people who are now um, putting out the information, uh, they've learnt it from somewhere and they've probably learnt it from the likes of yourself either in person or possibly from your videos online or articles or stuff you've done anyway. So it's just trying to connect it back to the origin of a lot of these thoughts and ideas that have just permeated through the internet now. That's a fact and I've, I've seen I've seen people, you know, I back a long time ago, whenever I was competing, I saw some people almost have a heart attack whenever I threw my, um, didn't throw, but I set my AW down on the ground. It was a, a rainy, rainy match, mud everywhere. And I went over and I picked up a water hose and I sprayed it off. You know, I sprayed all the mud off of it and then went straight into the next event. And people almost had a heart attack. Said, no, you can't do that. Well, I just did it. You know, I just, there's... <laughs> there's there's nothing wrong with this. They will still run, believe me. Um, and, and so, yeah, you're right. And you're you're you hit the nail on the head with a lot of points out on the internet that people need to understand. If if you just walked into this game, you know, in the last two to three years, keep your eyes open and your ears open. That is probably going to be your best thing to do. And if you run across somebody who's really really good, nine times out of ten, or let me say, let me back that up, ninety nine times out of a hundred. That person will fall all over themselves trying to help you and answer your questions. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, two two things that it reminds me of is one, like like you say, hosing down your firearm. A few years ago, when I I got into pistol shooting for the first time, and a civilian, I'd never held a pistol before, and I was essentially at the at the course. They handed me a pistol, and I was holding it like it was a bit of a porcelain doll or something. And then right. after a while, they said, look, this is a big hunk of metal that's designed for being originally designed for military use, for combat use. This will take a beating. It will do all sorts of stuff. You know, it's still you look after it, but you don't have to um, pussyfoot around it, really. It's, it's right. you know, and then by I, I look back now to the way I would handle a pistol now is very, very different to when I first started, you know. Um, and it's just it's interesting as you learn. And the other thing I had recently, which is when I was I jumped onto those um, uh, Vimeo videos of yours, was the, and it was this whole thing where I'd heard different bits of it, but it was nice to finally see your version and take on it. Was the off the the finger offset grip, when you put it in the context of a traditional style hunting stock, where that gap. Mm -hmm was between it and finally even though i'd heard it sort of explained in a couple of different ways it was like ah now i've got the context or the original reason behind it i can now see how you would 
now it's like, all right, I can apply that to any stock or grip or anything because I understand why that really came about, not necessarily just because I wanted to have my fingers on the front of a, a grip. Correct. Um, Correct. Yeah. As long as you're positioning your hand where you can come straight back on the trigger, everything else is legal. Yes. And that, that's the key. And that's where I think, unfortunately, people will go back to this dogma of this is the way you hold it. Whereas you go back to your information where it's like, well, no, this is what you need to achieve. How you hold it within certain considerations is less important sure. as long as you achieve this. Well, that, that comes up a lot. And first, I wanted to before I before I answer that, I wanted to go back to your pistol thing. You know, sure. when you're out there shooting pistols and, and that thing, you know, like if you have your Glock or whatever. Uh, and it gets really, really dirty. Strip it down to its component parts. Put it in the dishwasher. Whenever it's done, re-oil it. Put it back together and go to work. <laughs> yep. The other thing was is about um, you know just talking about the <laughs> barricades. Every everything, every prop that you see out there is some sort of variation on a barricade. And so whenever I have you know really new green shooters, I'll go over and I'll do a demonstration on how to shoot a barricade. You know where your support hand goes, where your feet go, where this goes, where this goes. Well, everybody has a little bit different body style and invariably in every class, you know, a student will say, well, hey, if I put my foot here, is that OK? And my answer is always the same. I don't care what you do. Support the fundamentals of marksmanship. If you're supporting the fundamentals of marksmanship, everything else is legal. It doesn't matter. You're going to have your elements of a good shooting position. You want stability, things like that. But the fundamentals are what's going to put metal to meat. And so. That's what I say. It doesn't matter if, if you can't if you can't sit on your foot like this, if you can't bend your knee like this, fine, it doesn't matter. Mm. Find a place where you can do it and follow the fundamentals of marksmanship and you'll be good to go. Yep. Yep. And that, that applies to so especially for a lot of guys we're coming across guys who are shooting who are getting a little bit older, they're maybe not uh, as fit as they once were. So and maybe they've got a little bit more protrusion out the front than than maybe they once had. So yeah, you can't apply the same rules even for for prone shooting sometimes for every single person because I know people who have had hip replacements or knee replacements where they are not ever going to get their ankles flat again. It's not going to happen. Sure, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. You know, as you get older, you know, you lose naturally lose a little bit of that range of motion that you have in your joints, all of them, you know, from your neck all the way down to your, to your toes. And so what do you do? You adapt, you know, you adapt to where you can support the fundamentals and, you know, more than likely things are going to work out for you. So I've got, I mean, a, a couple of questions and they're not, it's not, I'm, again, with the conversation I had, I'm not necessarily looking for the, the one and only sp- specific question it's more a lot of these i realize the more i ask questions that they're discussion points they don't all have specific answers some of them are a little bit well to be to be blunt the reason i do this is so i can ask people like you these these questions so some are related very much to me or things i'm i'm working around um Mm -hmm. the big one i'm having at the moment is i and and there's a there's discussion online about this with this whole um shoulder pocket you know where are we positioning the firearm on a head we're trying to get it straighter we're trying to get our head uh straighter because so that we're not cocking our whole heads over the the challenge i have with this is i wear glasses and if mm-hmm. i put contacts in uh, i have astigmatism so if i have my head on a twist or anything the contacts go out of so it all gets it's a, it's a challenge either way do you have tips or suggestions for people who have to wear glasses, corrective glasses, getting behind optics? Well, 
keep in mind for one thing, you know, whenever whenever we're talking about the handgun carbine side of the house and we're we're up and we're doing, you know, uh, CQB stuff with, you know, frangible ammo up close to steel and stuff like that, you need to have some sort of protective lenses on. Agreed. Um, yep. Now, whenever it comes to the precision rifle side of the house, I you will find no one who, especially if you come to one of my classes or one of my matches, you know, I'm, I'm pretty famous in the U.S. about being just a safety nut. I'm an absolute safety nut. But again, now what we're doing is we're talking about we're shooting powered optics on mm. steel that's, you know, more than 300 yards away. We're, the, the chance of a backsplash coming back, you know, 900 feet is, is pretty remote. But the ocular lens on your scope, the lens that's closest to your eyeball, whenever you go in and you, you're, you use this to focus the reticle itself, you know, you, what you're trying to do is get the crosshairs in nice, crisp focus. And so what you'll do is you'll look at it. If the, if the reticle is slightly blurry, pull your head away, make an adjustment on that ocular lens, and then look again. It's either going to be better or worse. If it's better, then try a little bit more. See if it gets even better. But it should be where as soon as you put your head behind that scope, that reticle should be nice and crispy. What you're doing is you're adjusting that scope. You're adjusting the diopter to your eye. So what you're essentially doing is putting the correction that you have in your corrective lens, you're putting that in the scope. It's exactly the same as when you go to the eye doctor and he has that that stick with the two lenses on it. And he says one or two better, worse, one, two better, worse. He doesn't let you stare at it for a long time. He just lets you look at it briefly to see if your image became clear. Well, that's what you're doing. And so that's what we typically recommend for our people who are wearing glasses and they're having a rough go of it. I don't know if that answered your question, but uh, uh, yeah, it has. It has, and I suppose to clarify as well for for people listening, and just to see if I understand it, what you're basically saying is, for most guys who are wearing uh, glasses when they're behind the rifle, is lift the glasses up, put them on your head, and use the the adjustment on the actual scope to dial in the correction that you need instead of using your glasses. That's all you're doing. You're yeah. you're what you're doing is you're you're adjusting your scope to your prescription whenever you adjust that ocular lens. Perfect. That's it. That's the that's the thinking behind the struggle. Now, I mean, I'll have to try myself because of my particular issue is astigmatism, which is actually basically horizontal and vertical vertical focus is different, and I don't. Mm-hmm. It's different from uh, short sightedness or long sightedness. So it'd just be interesting. I'll have a play. It's just it's just like you say. No, you perfect answer because you've just given me that thinking to go off and experiment and go ah. Oh, Aha, uh-huh, this would be what it is. Um, well, yeah, that, that's what that ocular lens is for. And what they're, it, it's just, it, it's a, it's exactly the same as if you're looking, if you're in the doctor's office, the eye doctor's office, and you're looking at the letterboard. Yeah. And he's going one, two, and he's changing out those lenses. He's trying to find out which diopter is best for your eyeball. Yeah. Well, what you're doing is rather than looking at a letterboard, you're looking at the reticle. You're looking at the crosshairs themselves. And as soon as you get those to where they're nice and crispy and focused, you never have to change that for range. It's always going to be the same. Now, parallax is a different story. You yes. know, parallax is, yep. is, is a different ball game, but that's that's a different that's a different conversation. But what you're doing is you're that's the beauty of now. I mean, we have these scopes that are so good. We can adjust them to our 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 vision correction. Perfect. Yep. That that's it. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. Oh, good. That's 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 made that whole chat with you worthwhile. Just that one answer, mate. Thank you. So. <laughs> Um, another one, and this is something that I've mused over, and in the context as well for this question as well, is, is the, the, the question itself in a nutshell is suppressor or break. But mm-hmm. further to that, because I know the differences in the US, you still have challenges putting a suppressor on it, whereas in New Zealand, 
I can walk into any gun store, buy a suppressor, don't even need a license or anything, and walk out with a suppressor. So, again... It's easy to rub yeah, I know. Sorry, I rubbed that into everybody I talked to in the US um, or Australia. Actually, I had had some Australians down, and they literally they'd been shooting for ages, but they just wanted some photos of them shooting suppressed firearms because they're like, "Oh, this is this is awesome." So yeah. <laughs> so while you're still dealing with that crazy little bit of um, fact, uh, do you actually have a preference for a suppressor or a break, or is it again horses for courses? Yeah, you know, it's going to be one of those things. What am I doing? You know, if what am I doing with my gun? Again, you know, the the thing about it is we, you know, all my all my rifles are suppressed um, or I can run a break on them. If I'm going to go out and do, you know, a little club match to where I'm going to be moving in and out of structures and stuff like that. Well, I'm going to go with the break because it makes my barrel a little bit shorter. Hmm. If I'm going to go out and do my own practicing or if I'm going on a hunting trip, I'm going to use a suppressor. Um to be blunt, I really don't mind using a suppressor during a match either. Uh, I don't really think it, it affects me that much. It gives a good balance to my rifle. You know, it gives me a little bit more weight out there. Um, it's six of one, half dozen of the other. Some people prefer suppressors. Some people prefer brakes. Um, uh, there's really no pat answer on that one. Well, yeah. I mean, I have this conversation with people. For a while, I was a brake put a brake on everything doesn't matter oh you know i don't care if it's a 6.5 or a 6 or whatever i've got it's a running joke i've got a brake on my 22 because uh, it's just a joke i had with a gunsmith at the time it's like why would i have any more recall that i wanted but i realized over time that even though yes theoretically the gun the firearm had less recoil with the brake is that i was almost flinching still in anticipation of that brake um, hitting me with the percussive and the sound blast and I noticed mm -hmm. now running a suppressor even though technically if you tested it it would have uh, more recoil than just using a flat out brake I shoot it I tend to shoot better because I'm not I don't have that extra noise and everything and I've found this has been the case with a lot of other shooters as well is that yeah you just suppress their firearm and they just don't have that anticipation of the the, the loud bang which I think still naturally all of us humans are going to flinch at oh yeah I agree with you you know and everybody flinches there's no question about that and yeah. and again you're you're exactly right on the suppressor you're going to have you know just slightly more recoil but you know position your body right use the fundamentals so you can manage your recoil that that shouldn't be an issue yeah um, going through it, it seems like that. You know, whenever we see people come through here, the, it's like these brake manufacturers, what they're trying to do is they're trying to build the most obnoxious muzzle brake in the world. You know what I mean? Something that yeah. is just so loud that it kills everybody, you know, to the right or the left of you. Now, whenever the person is shooting it, it's not it's not as bad as the person who's by the side of it. And what they're doing is they're really reducing that recoil a lot. But again, you do get that that concussive blast, and as humans, we know that we shouldn't we shouldn't be around things that make that kind of noise because it's just not right. <laughs> so, well, it's always a good example for people when you see someone spotting for somebody else shooting, and they position themselves where so many people who haven't done a lot before, basically, so they can look right up the ports of the muzzle. You know, they're sitting down next to them to to spot right next to them. They can look up the ports of the yep. muzzle brake. And you're like, well, one, maybe not the best place to be spotting from, from an actual spotting point of view, but two, that's going to be a really noisy spot. And you soon see them holding their hands up or just just holding over the heads on the side that they're, they're getting that blast into the side. That's um, true. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. 
The best place is from above and behind. Yes. <laughs> That's the best place to spot from. So that, that segues into my next question because it's something I'm realis- realizing more and more. Like, um, as I said, this week I've spent more time behind a spotting scope than I have behind a rifle with people. Do you, down to brand preference, do you have a preference in a spotting scope that you would be using or what is what is the one that you would use? And, you know, what do you look for in a good spotting scope? Ah, really, really good question. Mm. Really good question. I'll tell you, it's like, um, you know, it, it's a tough question because whenever you say, you know, what what type of what type of car do you like? Yeah. You know, I like them all. You know what I mean? I really like them all. You know, say so what what do you like, you know, in, you know, what what is a really good after dinner drink? Uh, I, I pretty much I like them all. You know, they all have their good attributes and everything else. Where we're fortunate now is whenever I first started out, the spotting scopes that we had were extremely substandard. You know, it, it was just crazy. And then the one that came up and really took, you know, took the whole nation by storm was a Leupold Gold Ring. Yep. And that Leupold Gold Ring spotting scope is good. I mean, it's robust. It's uh, it's got enough clarity, you know, to where you know you can, you know, you can you can see what you're looking at and everything else. And then now let's go into what I call optical nirvana. You know, the the Spotter 45 or the Spotter 60. Yeah. You know, those are very, very high-end spotting scopes that, man, you can just see so much. Now, being here at Rifles Only, where we have the tower and these super high winds that we train in and everything else, I can't use a Spotter 45 or a Spotter 60. As robust as they are, I'm going to break it. Uh, either I'm going to clumsy and I'm going to trip over it, or the wind's going to knock it over, and I'm going to be sitting there looking at $5,000 worth of equipment that I just broke because I was an idiot. Mm. So I will go with uh, a little bit a little bit less expensive spotting scope for that particular reason to where if I do break it, I can replace it and it doesn't hurt me that much. Um, Bushnell has a lot of them. Vortex has a lot of them. Yeah. And all of those ones, Burris, uh, all of those ones that, you know, they're good enough. You know, now if I'm going to, if I'm going to go out and some, someone says, I'm going to give you any spotting scope that you want, tell me what it is. All right, great. I want a spotter 60. But then if I'm going out and I have to go and, and, and replace this thing because of something stupid that I did or the wind knocked it over on the tower and it fell 30 feet. Well, I need to go with something a little bit less expensive that allows me to, you know, see what the students are doing, you know, see where the bullets are impacting, see where the strikes are going. And, you know, enough is enough. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting because it's, I'm looking at similar like long, short term, long term is that, yeah, as you said, you, you want something almost cheaper that, and same thing, if someone else is using my spotting scope, if they knock over uh, the scope, I don't want to be that guy who's panicking and, and getting crappy at them because they've knocked over something I gave them to use anyway. That's not, that's one stupid, two not fair on them. So yeah, looking at things like the the, the Bushnell, uh, I think the Elite Tactical or something, but at the other mm-hmm. end for myself, and this is where it becomes quite specific to me is yes looking at a, a 45 or a 60 or potentially the other option being is the um swarovski the str80 i think it is mm-hmm. you yeah. mentioned your preference for the 60 to to really nail down is there a reason that do you just like the additional zoom you have on the 60 over the 45 no nah, there's a, if if i if, if the only reason i would use a 60 is because the 45 wasn't available right okay okay yeah. i'm fine with the 45 i'm oh. fine with the 45 Gotcha. Oh well, that's that's narrow. Like I so, say, this is me just musing over things. But I was just like, well, you'd be you use them a hell of a lot more than anybody I know down here would have the opportunity to do so. So, yeah, we were doing a, we were doing some courses um, earlier earlier this winter in Colorado. We did a couple of courses back to back in the snow, 
and uh, it, you know it was in the mountains and things like that. And fortunately, one of the one of my staff, he's got a forty five. Yeah. And uh, and I just oh my gosh, that was so easy to spot with, and it's so clean, and it's just beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> And it's from the other side of the world down here as well. But that's I've talked to the boys up there. They can they can send me one down. I'm just just musing. It's one of those things. Unfortunately, I I've never seen one in the flesh down here in New Zealand. I'll maybe have to put a call out and see if someone's got one, and I can go travel down, visit them, and, and use it for a day or something. Well, I had a I had a sixty that was here whenever they first released them. I had a sixty here for test and eval. Yep. And I had it. For- days and i tell you what the, the one of the hardest things that i did was put that scope back in a box to send it home <laughs> well it i've come to that point i've realized that instead of another rifle for me the amount i'm using a spotting scope i might as well put that into a spotting scope and the same amount i, I would put into a rifle and if you'd asked me if i'd do that a couple of years ago the answer would have been hell no but i suppose as you you use a few of these things and realize what i've always known the optics were one of the most important parts of the system and that's what i would tell a lot of people people is is spend i tend to say spend the same you're going to do on your rifle as you are on your optics there's obviously some caveats with that um sure but now i'm realizing it's things like binos it's things like spotting scopes if you can't see stuff it's pretty hard to make decisions about it as well i'll tell you one thing that you might want to look into Mm. my wife for my birthday she just got me a pair of uh 18 power canon binoculars that are image stabilized okay and so they were about 1100 US. Yep. And that's what I've been using since. I put those on a tripod and you know when the wind kind of vibrates the tripod a little bit, I can just push that button for the uh, for this image stabilization and I'm having fantastic luck with that. Mm. I mean it's just it's working really really well. They're available on Amazon. I have noticed uh, as well a little bit of a trend or just mentioned a few times as guys, yeah, who are using the bigger binos, a 15 or in your case an 18 time for spotting as well and, and heading away from the traditional uh, monocular spotting scope, I suppose. Right. And there'd be no question. That, that monocular is going to give you a headache after a while. You yes. know, if you've been on it all day, if you've been looking through the spotting scope all day, you know, you're you're going to end up with a little bit of eye pain and, you know, maybe a headache. And binoculars, the binoculars are just, that's gone. I mean, because you're using, you're using your stereo vision like you should be. Yeah. And so, and these things are adjustable too. If you have, if you have a different diopter adjustment for each of your eyes, you can still adjust that. If you've got interpupillary distance, it's adjustable for that as well. Like I said, the, what they've done with these things nowadays is just incredible. Mm. And so, I mean, I can sit up there and look through those binos all day long, you know, and there's no problem whatsoever. And 18 is plenty good for spotting. You know, yes. it's, it's fun. You're, you're able to see everything that you could with, you know, with 25 or anything else. So I'm, I'm real pleased with, with that particular system that I'm using now. Well, I, I, again, considered myself fortunate when I got into it. I was the guy who was sort of uh, took me on his wing to show me a few bits and pieces would not yell at me, but every time I turned a spotting scope up all the way or even just a rifle scope all the way, he'd basically tell me to pull it back out so I wasn't like, you know, permanently at max zoom looking at everything. And it, right. was, it was a good lesson to learn. And, and again, same thing. You'll notice people get on a, a scope. Often the first thing they do is just zoom it all the way up to max, no, no matter whether they're shooting paper at 100 or steel at 800 or anything. Well, and I'm a practical point on that. You know, like if you're, you know, and, and it reminds me, you know, I, I have a I have a great New Zealand hunting story if I get into it if you want me to. Sure. But the, um, the thing about it is, is if you are out and you're on a stock, you know, and you do have you do have your animal pop up really close, and you have to pull that rifle up to your shoulder and make a shot. You want to have a low power so that it opens up your field of view. You yeah. know what I mean? So you're not you're not out there searching through the optic for it. 
Um, and again, you know, I, I think there is a place for the 25 power uh, rifle scope. And I think that would be if you're testing a load, you know, and if you, you know, doing load development or something like that. But in the field, I'm going to back that power down enough to where I can, you know, first focal plane, see my reticle, be able to see the image of my shot. But that's really all I'm concerned about. I don't need that much power. Yeah. And if you're trying to shoot at a thousand meters and it's it's really hot and you jack the power all the way up to 25. Well, yeah, you're you're making your target bigger, but you're also you're magnifying your mirage and whatever atmospheric condition you're magnifying that 25 times. And so I reach over on a student and I'll back that power down to like 12 and they say, wow, I can see so much better. I say, yeah, (laughs) of course you can. Well, it's interesting, like to your point, I just said the the thing I've realized recently is where I also yeah really appreciate a 25 or more time zoom is when I am at 100 and I want to be able to see the holes in the paper without having to either go down and, and measure and check things or to get onto a spotting scope. Um, sure. And that's, that's what I've realized is about the best time I use my 25 times power is while zeroing a rifle at 100 on paper. It's great for that's that. That's what it's yeah, I, I agree with you at ten, a hundred percent. Yeah. So related to that, and it's I asked this slightly tongue in cheek because I, I had this conversation with someone recently, and I said to them, "Oh, well, look, this is sort of the Gucci end of things. Do we really need it? Hell no. Am I gonna? Is it just about accessorizing my firearm? Hell yes. And it's for me in Auckland, in New Zealand, it's a very Auckland thing to do. And and people listening to this will know what I mean by that. Uh, what is your thoughts on a red dot on top of a optic on a precision rifle? Mm, <laughs> I, think, uh, I don't really like it that much. And here's the reason why. Um, one, it's more equipment, so it's more weight. That's not really doing anything for you. But if I'm if I'm moving through the brush, okay, and I have I've got uh, the forearm in my left hand, and I've got my finger on the grip of the rifle. My safe position on there is my finger straighten off the trigger, so it's right around. You know, it's right. It's it's pointing down the muzzle of the rifle. Yep. So uh, in me in a hunting scenario, let's say I'm walking and I see, you know, I suddenly see a white tail. Well, the thing about it is all I have to do is point my trigger finger at the whitetail. And as soon as I go to glass, he's going to be in my field of view because I don't have my power up at 25. I've got it down at about six. And so as soon as I point my finger at it and I put my eye on the glass, he's already in my field of view. I don't really think it's I don't really think it's necessary where I really like the red dots are obviously, obviously handgun carbine, stuff like that. Where I really like red dot is on a spotting scope. I think that's where it, it really comes into play, you know, for for that type of stuff, but putting the red dot on a rifle. Now I know there's some semi-autos out there that uh, people are doing, you know, some short range competitions and they're putting the red dot at a 45 degree can. I can't really speak to that because if it's working for them, you know, good for them. If, um, if someone wants to put that red dot, you know, up on the rifle, okay, good for them if that's what they need to do. Um, But I, I just don't see the point of it because I've, I've been, Ever since I was a little kid, I've been pointing at stuff. Hey, look over here. Look at this. Look at this. And I point at it. Mm. So wherever I point my finger, that's pretty much where my eye is going to go. And if I'm holding my rifle in the proper position with my finger straightened off the trigger, all I got to do is point my finger at it, which automatically points my rifle at it, which automatically points my scope at it. And then automatically I can get a shot off quickly. I don't need the red dot. I think the red dot will cost me more time. 
Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's something like say something I've been playing with. But your point is, it's sort of uh, with the the finger pointing. I was just I'm I'm standing here with my finger pointed and looking at where I'm pointing my finger. And you're like, you're exactly right. You're indexing that on your rifle. In theory, even when you're putting your rifle down or moving from position at distance, you're still pointing at it with that finger. Exactly. And that's where the finger's supposed to be. It's straighten off the trigger until you're ready to shoot anyway. Mm. And so you know, by the time we have we have a a uh, contraption here at Rifles Only called a mouse trap. And what it is, it's a multi-ported positional uh, extravaganza. And um, it's like, like I tell these guys, when you're going through the mousetrap, look through there, point your finger at your target, then go to glass. Because I can't tell you how many times people have just got in their glass and they're searching for their target and they're searching for their target. Say, hey, look over the scope, point your finger at it. Whenever you go to glass, it's right there in your field of view. It's very mm -hmm. simple. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So uh, the the most ambiguous probably question that I think anyone who's doing firearms training could ever be asked, I'm about to ask, and uh, that is tips for reading wind. <laughs> <laughs> Got to ask it because it's I, I, it all come, it seems to for us especially here at the end of the day it all comes down to that. <laughs> it sure does. It sure does. Okay, so uh, it, here's here's the thing. There's a couple things you got to do before you can go off and start reading wind. Sure. The first thing you do is you need to understand that whenever you pull the trigger on your rifle, if you're getting rifle hop right or left, it's because of something that you're doing. Mm -hmm. You need to stop that. You need to get it to where you're not getting any differential pressure on there. You're coming straight back on the trigger. You're holding the rifle straight into your shoulder pocket so that whenever the rifle discharges, the bullet goes one way and the recoil goes the other. The whole reason that we want to get straight behind our gun, obvious reasons, because you're a smaller target indicator when somebody's looking back at you or an animal's looking back at you. Mm. You know, you're, you're creating a smaller profile of yourself. But the other thing is, is we want to be able to see the result of our shot through our own optic because we're not always going to have somebody out there spotting for us. And normally, if you get a chance to go like, you know, you're, you're at work a normal day and then, you know, all of a sudden you got the afternoon off and you want to go shoot. But the buddy that you shoot with, he's working. So you're you're stuck by yourself. Are you still with me? Yep. Okay, so what we need to do is be able to see the result of our shot through our own optic at, at, at any time, at any range. So here's the reason for that. If I'm going to go out and I'm going to learn to shoot in the wind, the best thing you could do is grab yourself a case of ammunition and go shoot in the wind. But you're not going to be able to do that if you're not able to spot your own shots. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like shooting moving targets. Um I, I have my phone here with uh, several different ballistic programs in it. And so I've got these moving tape, moving target formulas in there. And so I can go over and I can give myself, I can look down at my phone into my electronics and believe me, I love, I love ballistics programs and I love what they can do for you. But by the time I finish running my moving target formula, the, the nature of the target is gone. It's a mover. It's gone. <laughs> yep. You know what I mean? So yep. by the time I get adjustments or decide what I'm going to hold, well, my target's gone. So I missed the opportunity. So what you have to do is you have to be able to spot your own shot. If I'm going out and I'm going to go and I'm going to do a series of shots from 300 to 1,000 meters, and I can do it you know, all day right here at, the, at Rifles Only, what I want to do is I want to shoot my static targets. And whenever I know that it's at 300, from the time I pull the trigger until I see the splash of the bullet you know, on the target, what I've done is my mind has learned about time of flight. Does that make sense to you? Yes. Yep. Okay, if I'm shooting at 400, I know how long it takes for the bullet to get there. This is all subconscious stuff that really doesn't require any extra effort on your part. It's not like you got to sit there and pay attention to it. So whenever you're starting to shoot in the wind, you're going to get a, a, a really good idea of what is the wind where I am. I can pull out a Kestrel, 
and I can take a wind reading and I can say, all right, for this shot, it's going to require 1.8 mils right. Okay, perfect. Great. So I can either hold it or I can dial it. But the only place I've tested the wind is right where the shooter is. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. And so from there, if the shot is a thousand yards or a thousand meters, so to speak, remember that bullet is going to go up 16 feet from your line of sight at its max ordinate, probably at about 61% of the whole range. So at around 610 yards, it's going to be 16 feet above your line of sight. So I also know from experience that if I stand at the bottom of our tower and I take a wind reading and it's eight, and then I go up to where I go up one level on the tower where my feet are at 12 feet and I'm holding the Kestrel up. So it's at about 16 feet at this point. If it read eight on the ground, it's probably going to breed between 11 and 12 up when I'm up higher off the ground because the ground causes friction and slows down the wind. Well, your bullet's still going to have to go through those things. Does that make sense? Yes. And so you just have to understand that your bullet is not a laser beam. It's going to go up and it's going to come down. Um, and again, it doesn't really go up. It drops from the beginning. We're just pointing our barrels up. I, I understand all that. <laughs> but it's like if you go out, if you go out here and you're at, I've had students and this has happened so many times. We go out, we're getting our data. We get to 800. Everything's good to go. We get to 900 and everything falls apart. Mm. You say, all right, well, let's take a break from nine. Let's go ahead and hit the thousand. And everybody within two to three rounds are hitting the thousand. They go back to the 900. They can't hit it again. I mean, it's just whatever, for whatever reason, there's a strange terrain feature out there that just does something weird with your bullet. Best thing you can do is make your, like, let's say it's going to be that 1.8 again. I'm, I'm putting that 1.8 on there. So I put the 1.8. I see the fall of shot. The answer is not 1.8. It's 2.1. I don't even have to think. All I have to do is run the bolt rather than hold 1.8, hold 2.1. The bullet just told me. The yep. bullet told me what it needed. And so I'll hold the 2.1, get the shot off, and get the hit. But you have to be able to do it quickly, and you have to be able to see your own shot from your own optic. Um, it, I'm not answering your question, you know, how does someone learn how to shoot in the wind? The easiest answer or the best answer that you can say, if you want to learn how to shoot in the wind, don't depend on your electronics. Don't depend on the internet. Go and shoot in the wind. Mm -hmm. That's where you're going to get your best results is actually going out and seeing it for yourself. And I don't want anybody to say that, you know, I'm down on electronics or anything else. I am not. I've got like four of these programs in my phone and I'm always looking for new ones. But I, I love it. I think what they can do for us is fantastic. And you just have to understand that once you're out in the field, you know, all bets are off. You know, they, all bets are off. You're going to have to based off what your experience is and what you've seen happen in the past. Well, I, I think like to to your point as well, it's not like, well, the example I'd give is you'd, you'd see it at, at a firing line where you've got four guys all holding their kestrels up in the air and swinging them around and everything like that. And then you kind of observe that they're about to shoot over three different uh, valleys going different ways. And, and you're like, well, just look, you can see the, the, the foliage over there is going left to right. Another 300 meters down there, it's now going right to left. At the target, there's nothing moving at all. And, and we can feel the face directly in our wind. Uh, sorry, the wind directly in our face where we're actually standing. So sure. your kestrel's only giving you a limited amount of information. And the, the, especially in New Zealand, we're, we're, in some ways, I suppose we're lucky for the field shooting anyway. And this is where, this is the big difference between, say, an F class range where you're shooting flat range, known distance, known environmentals to an extent because you shoot there before. And for the hunting guys who are then walking out into mountains or hills or terrain features. And um, sure. funnily enough, I was out with a guy a couple of days ago who was a, um, uh, 
I'm gonna he's gonna I'm gonna butcher this. He'll be offended. A ship captain or a captain on a, a ship for a long time, so he mm-hmm. just he has the experience of of seeing it all basically as water because he understands wind in the context of sea. So he just sees sees water. Except, of course, I ask him to guess what the wind is, and he gives me an answer back in knots. I'm like, oh well, you're, I bet you're actually accurate if I convert, but I've got no frame of reference for a knot at this point in time. I know exactly what you mean. If you can see it in the, if you can see it in that context, it works out pretty good for you. Yeah. Wind is water. Wind is water, but then it does crazy stuff. So that's. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was doing a course in in Oregon, and um, I had gone up. We had you know got the course set up and everything else. And I remember this one shot we had. It was about a uh, twenty eight degree down angle, and about seven hundred and thirty yards. And so whenever you got set up on it, and you looked at it, and keep in mind we're in the mountains. Mm. You looked at it. You said man, I have to hold right for wind. Because you look at that target, you can see the mirage just screaming across it, you know, going right to left. Said, man, this is going to take a right wind correction no matter what. Yep. And so you put in a right wind, right wind correction, you made the shot, your bullet went exactly where you were aiming. And if you wanted to hit it, you had to hold dead on. And it was like, well, what was going on was, because of the terrain feature, the flight of the bullet was completely protected, except for about the last 50 yards. And right. so that 50 yards, there wasn't enough wind to take that bullet off target. It just wasn't, it wasn't in that environmental condition long enough to be blown off course. And those are the things that's why I'm saying, if you want to learn how to shoot in the wind, go and shoot in the wind. Because like what I just told you that, that little story that I just told you, Mm. you will never find that on a computer. You're never going to find it, you know, in your ballistics program, they make some assumptions. They make, they, they make the assumption that you have this wind and it's going to remain this wind over the entire flight of the bullet. And that just never happens. That's why you got to get out in the field and, and go shoot in the wind. Had a, had a very similar thing happen to me a couple of weeks ago. Seven mil rem mag, seven hundred meters. Calculate, stood there with my Kestrel, calculated what the wind I thought should be. Know the know the area I'm shooting in, so kind of know that it's actually going to be a bit more because I'm shooting over a big empty space. So in theory, you know, over the height of projectile and everything. But yeah, same thing. Actually, found out I needed to just hold dead on the target, and that's how it hit. <laughs> yeah. And those are the ones that hurt your brain, but those are the ones you have to go through. You can understand, you know, hey, this this is not this is not all it's cracked up to be. And the main thing about it is just understand that, you know, there's nothing complicated about this. This this is not rocket science or anything else. Go out and practice it like anything else. If you want to be a really good driver, go practice driving. You want to be good at tennis, go practice tennis. If you want to be a really good shooter, go and practice, you know, but practice correctly. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right, Jacob, thank you very much for your time. Um, it's been phenomenal. I know I've learned a lot and will be going back myself and listening through a few things and taking some notes. So for the guys over in the States, you've got your 2019 brawl coming up on the 22nd of February, is it? Yeah, 22nd and 23rd. Now, have you got spots available that, that still? Should guys be getting? No, it's been full for a while. <laughs> oh, well, in that case... Good. <laughs> Have a great con. You guys listening, if you're too late, you're too late. So, oh well. Get an earlier next time. Yeah, and, um, if there's some point that y'all want to uh, do a course down in New Zealand, I'm dying to go back. So let's set that up. <laughs> I think I am going to set up a tourism business just bringing shooting guides, uh, shooting uh, instructors down here because, um, yeah, it's a great place to visit. So, yeah, I'm sure we can organize that, Jacob. No, oh, yeah, just let me know. I would love to go back. I had it, a, it's going to be a race. Like I said to you, I think my, my next big holiday will be over in the US and I won't be sightseeing. Well, I'll be sightseeing. I'll just be coming over to like visit ranges and, and do some formal training with you guys. So it'll be a race of whether it's easier for me to get over there or to just bring you down here. 
Well, I tell you what, I would I would love to go back. I absolutely love New Zealand. We spent we spent I guess uh, ten days on the South Island and had the time of my life. That place doesn't look real. It's so pristine and beautiful. And <laughs> I always tell people that where we were hunting, you know, whenever you think of of Western Colorado, you think of you know the mountains that you're going through and you see everything else. But Western Colorado is relatively flat compared to the, some of the places you have down there on that island. Look, I'm I'm in uh, I'm in Auckland, which is the diametric opposite. Really, you know, it's the the biggest city, and it's it's ironic almost. I'm talking a lot about shooting and hunting where I'm away from the South Island, which has just got all the space to do it. But yeah, right. the, the the hunters down there are a truly unique breed. The shooters down there are a truly unique breed. Um, and yeah, it's something I wish I could get down and, and spend more time down there. Being down, there's a few guys doing shoots down there. They're phenomenal. They're they're well worth the guys locally. Or, uh, heading down and again hopefully the plans would be at some point we can organize almost like a tourist thing down to, to get new guys into it as well so well, let um, me know send me an email and get me in contact with those guys because i'd love to go down there and shoot with them even if we did a class or just went down and did one of their little cops or just go shooting together i would love to go done we'll we'll organize it so uh what else you got going on mate i know uh, the the challenges again we can talk about it i, I know you've got a distillery of rum and i i'm going to be hard pressed to get that down so you're gonna have to bring a couple of bottles of that down with you when you come to the course see it all it all makes sense now doesn't it it does make sense it does make sense yeah absolutely <laughs> we'll, we'll get that we'll get that taken care of for you we'll, we'll bring a suitcase just full of booze <laughs> um i can imagine customs oh why are you down here sir oh shooting competition why have you got a suitcase full of booze Shooting competition? Shooting competition. <laughs> um, what, what else you got going on, Jacob? Where can we push guys to learn a little bit more about what you're up to, what you're doing? Uh, you can go and visit the website. Yep. Uh, the website is uh, riflesonly.com. You can go to Facebook. You can pick up my personal Facebook, Jacob Bynum, or the Rifles Only Facebook page. Also visit the Wild Horse Distillery Facebook page. Kind of keeps you up on what different flavors we have going out and, and stuff like that. And then if you guys are ever over here, stop by. We're in South Texas. Um, the distillery and the rifle range are both on the same place, so you can you can tour both places at the same time. Um, just come visit. Keep in touch with us. Uh, send me emails. Anything that happened on this, my email address is jacob at riflesonly.com. If anybody had any follow-up questions or anything else, I, I, love to, I love to chat about shooting, and I love to make people better shooters. So do not hesitate if y'all need to get in touch. Awesome. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to the Trigonometry Podcast. Please make sure you visit our site at precisionshooter.info where you'll find show notes, additional links, and a pile of extra information, including competitions and updates on events near you. While you're there, pop over to our Facebook and Instagram pages where you'll see regular updates on the goings-on in the precision shooting community in New Zealand. The way that this show grows is through people like you. So please, share on Facebook, and if you know someone who's into shooting and may be interested in checking this out, flick them over a link. And if you're listening to this through a podcast aggregator or some form of app, make sure you leave us a review. It really makes a difference. Thanks again to The Gear Locker and all our additional supporters. And most importantly, thank you, the listener. Without you guys, none of this could happen. Talk soon, but for now, go have a shoot.